we are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our Doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round. Putting the wrong Doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Wendy Padbury, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club the podcast in which we undertake the inflammatory task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That's all I could come up with, <laughs> I swear. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an occasionally inflammatory three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. I mean, you could have said flaming, but... Well, I didn't want to assume anything, even though we're all pretty open about our extracurriculars here. I just wanted to make sure. I know. Yeah. And finally... Speaking of which, there's our special guest, a man who puts my claim of being a so-called expert to utter shame, the star of Page and Screen, Mr. Jim Sangster. Hello, Jim. Drop the sonic device. Oh, sorry, it's a microphone. Hello! (laughs) (laughs) So, most of our listeners are going to know who Jim Sangster is, but just in case there are the few who do not, Jim, why should we know you? <laughs> <laughs> That's what everyone says, yeah. Just why, just why. I've been around for a while. They might know me from being on the credits of lots of DVDs because I've been a photo researcher on those. I've also popped up on a few of them as a talking head. I'm all over Trial of a Time Lord, so if you've got the recent Blu-ray of that, you'll you'll see me from 15 years ago, maybe. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've been a contributor to Doctor Who magazine for about, what year are we now? About 15 years. And I've recently handed over the Toy Reviews, which was my main contribution to Doctor Who magazine. So I've now stopped doing those and given them to, uh, over to somebody else, and uh, it's a It's a pleasure. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. I've run out of ways of saying, this toy's really great. I like it. <laughs> he also does the most amazing illustrations of Doctor Who novelizations that were not illustrated. I've been enjoying those immensely. Like everyone else who went a bit crazy during lockdown, I decided to do 
a blog and read every single target book in publication order. So you're doing it in broadcast order. I did it in publication order. And then when I finished that, I was thinking, what else can I do? And I decided to do some illustrations. So just been putting them up on Twitter. So. And we're going to be reading a novelization of yours eventually. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's when I went really crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a certain level of crazy, especially for that story. It could only be an improvement, though. That's the important thing. You'll know that we'll say very nice things about it because <laughs> we've already said very bad things about the source material. Damned by faint praise. <laughs> yes, yes, we try. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine you would, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PPS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them. You store them all in an abandoned manor house guarded by plague-ridden rats, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Slumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you. Almost had it. <laughs> almost, almost. I needed a bigger breath there. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's first season as The Doctor, as we discuss Eric Sayward's novelization of The Visitation. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Visitation, adapted by Eric Sayward from the script that aired from 215.82 to 223.82, published by Target Books in August 1982. As of this recording in March 2023, this title is available from BBC Books and as an abridged audiobook, 121 pages. Now, this is the earliest novelization of a Fifth Doctor story, as it turns out. The next one of Davison's stories to be novelized by Target wouldn't be released until April of 1983, that one being Time Flight the hardback of which came out in January of the same year. Time flight in hardback. Talk about polishing a turd. That explains a couple of things about the cover of this one. For one thing, it has the standard Doctor Who and the titling convention that most of the novelizations had up to this point, and it is in fact the only Peter Davison story to have that titling convention. It is not the last one, because that honor goes to Doctor Who and the Sunmakers, which was published that autumn, so we've already read that one. Also, not only does it have the first photo cover ever, it includes a banner introducing Peter Davison. I've recently heard from a friend of the podcast, Larry Van Mersvergen, of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, exactly why the covers for this era are photos. Davison communicated through his agent that he didn't like any of the artwork proposed for the covers featuring him, including one done by Andrew Skilleter, and that just defies belief. I cannot believe anyone would look at something that Andrew Skilleter had drawn and said, nope, not for me. I've heard some artists say that Davison is notoriously difficult to draw, and there's something to that if you've ever looked at the VHS releases and the later Blue Spine reprints of the books. I was telling Dalton that on one of the VHSs, he looks very much like Bill Pullman for some reason. <laughs> we have two major people to introduce for this episode, one of whom we've been putting off for far too long. Tegan, 
is played by Janet Fielding, born Janet Claire Mahoney in Brisbane in 1953. She had planned to become a television journalist, but ended up moving to England and pursuing an acting career. She landed the role of Tegan after having only appeared on TV once in the October 1980 episode Charlie Boy of Hammer House of Horror, which I've, I've never seen that episode, but I have seen Hammer House of Horror. In 1991, she gave up acting to work for Women in Film and Television UK and then became a theatrical agent representing no less than the 8th Dr. Paul McGann, though I don't think she got him that job. I'm not quite sure. She actually tried to talk him out of it. Did she really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can understand why, because in the late 90s, she wasn't too fond of Doctor Who, but she returned to the role of Tegan in 2006 for Big Finish, and spoiler alert, she reprised her role on television in Jodie Whittaker's recent final episode, The Power of the Doctor. There are various other Doctor Who-related things she did during and after her time on the show, and we'll address at least one of them when we get to it, and... Jim, you know what I'm talking about, because your name happens to be part of it, unfortunately. <laughs> Different Jim, but yeah. Fielding's contribution to the Davison era is obviously immense, as is the contribution of new script editor Eric Sayward, the writer of the story, though he wasn't script editor when he wrote it, due to the odd scheduling of filming in the season. After doing many scripts for BBC Radio, several of which included the character who would eventually become Richard Mace in The Visitation, and Jim sent me a link to one of those, and it was interesting listening. The senior drama script editor there suggested to Christopher H. Bidmead that Sayward should submit for the show. On the strength of the script, Antony Root, who had temporarily replaced Bitby, the script editor, suggested Sayward for the post. There, he would work alongside John Nathan Turner right up to the moment when he didn't. <sighs> More about that later as well. He would contribute four scripts to the show. But this, his adaptation of the radio play Slipback, and Attack of the Cybermen were the only novelizations he contributed to the target range until quite recently. Again, more on those when we get to them. Jim, did I get that right? <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't he do The Twin Dilemma as well? Oh, that's right, he did. He does The Visitation, then takes Earthshock off because he found doing The Visitation quite difficult while doing his day job. Yep. Then fills in doing Slipback and The Twin Dilemma, and then there's Attack of the Cybermen. Right. Okay. And then, ha then he puts his feet up for about 30 years. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And then he did Well, actually, no, he, he started doing... You'll have to cut this, by the way, Dalton. He started doing the Target books, and apparently they were so bad that they got shelved. <gasps> really? Yeah. Are we not allowed to say that? Well, I'm only going on other people's commentary. I've not seen it, and I, I'm so I, it's unreliable. But Target lined up two other authors to do the novelizations of the, the two Dalek stories, Paul Cornell and Gareth Roberts. Oh. And then that fell through as well because Eric Sayward didn't want someone else novelizing them. Goodness. So there is a, a dimension out there where there is a worse version of Resurrection of the Daleks than the one we got. 
That's hard to believe. So do, do, you, do you want to have another go at that <laughs> summary of? He, he, no. he, did, he, he did quite a few because he's he's one of the most prolific authors now. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of surprising to be honest. But yeah. but no, I'll I'll leave all that in because it is interesting, and I suspect the reason why I have that problem is because say word, and that's going to be a sticking point too. He hasn't always novelized his own stuff, and I'm thinking about Twin Dilemma now, because that isn't his, whereas Attack of the Cybermen, uh, the authorship of that one is still kind of a gray area. Yeah. Well, tell you what, Jim, you said that you had some interesting information about the actor who plays Richard Bass in this one. Well, I was thinking about, because I I also am a guest on another Target-based podcast, and it's often difficult when you're speaking to people from North America who might not know the personalities of the actors. You know, they're not famous across the ocean. So uh, Michael Robbins, who plays Richard Mace, he was uh, a character actor with a long list of TV roles, but he's famous for just one, playing a character called Arthur in a sitcom called On the Buses, which, um, heavy on the irony here, it was a sophisticated comedy from the late 60s and early 70s. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, in, in the style of elegance of the carry-on movies, only only cruder. So oh. imagine imagine MASH, but instead of it being Hawkeye trying to get one over on his, his boss in, in, in the, the hospital, uh, it's set in a bus depot, and it's about the bus drivers trying to get one over on their manager while making jokes about how ugly Arthur's sister is. No, no, that's Arthur's sister! Listen, she's panting for it. <laughs> Look, mate, she's been brought up like Arthur, not until you're married, and then only at Christmas time and bank holidays. And it ran for seven series, plus a couple of movies made by Hammer. Oh, God. When they, when they were dipping out of horror and into comedy. So by the time this was broadcast in 1982, kids wouldn't know him, but their parents would, and that's what J&T was really good at, which is trying to get the mums and dads to join in as well. I was trying to think of an equivalent for American viewers. Imagine Carol O'Connor. Imagine Archie Bunker. So he'd done lots of other things, but All in the Family is the thing that most people know him from. So that it's that kind of role, that kind of actor. Someone who's famous for one long-running comedy. Yeah, it would have been very much like when Carol O'Connor went on to do In the Heat of the Night. Yeah, which only lasted for like one series fewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's still better known for All in the Family than In the Heat of the Night for certain generations. It was comparable to something that we talked about last episode, and that's Nerese Hughes, who was on uh, Liverbirds. And I finally watched a couple episodes of that, and I was like, oh, God. This show's terrible. Even though, Jim, I know you're you're from Liverpool, so I probably shouldn't be dismissing that show too terribly, but... It's blasphemy. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> is blasphemous. <laughs> but she's a very different character when she plays Dr. Todd. Well, I think, if I've got the timing right, she'd also done a series called District Nurse, where she plays a nurse going around a district. Oh, <laughs> and, okay. Uh, so for younger viewers that would be what they'd know her from when she did Doctor Who okay but again it's I grew up in a family where every time we're watching a movie my mum and dad would go oh it's thingy off watch him I call it and they'd (laughs) they'd be calling out the actors and that's something that I do now I mean uh, again you probably wouldn't understand how important the squire is at the beginning of the visitation it's a very small part in the very first scene where the squire and his, his kids 
shoot the Terraleptal and then get attacked by the, the android. And that's John Savident, who at the time wasn't a household name. About a couple of years after he did that scene, he starred in the first episode of Blackadder as the king. Oh, wow. But not the episode that was broadcast. It was an unbroadcast pilot with a different actor playing Baldrick using a script that was later adapted into, I think, episode three or four of the eventual Blackadder series. So he plays the king, and he's you know he's a very shouty man, and he's replaced by Brian Blessed, who's very shouty. Yes. But John Savadant later became one of the most famous men on British TV when he played Fred Elliott, the very loud, shouty comic butcher on Coronation Street. Oh. He was like a sort of Lancastrian foghorn leghorn. He kept repeating things going, you mark my words, I say you mark my words. <laughs> <laughs> so again, like at the time, we wouldn't, we might recognise him because he'd been in a couple of episodes of Blake 7 or because he'd done a few sitcoms, but within about 10 years, he was about to become very, very famous indeed. Yes, and we'll see that happen a couple more times in the JNT series of Doctor Who. Yeah, there are people who will have their first or their second outings, and then they'll catapult and stardom. You've just done Kinder, haven't you? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was thinking Snake Dance. Well, Kinder is full of actors who ended up on The Bill, which is the British version of Hill Street Blues, kind of. Oh, right, and Johnny Lee Miller was in there. And Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah, yeah it's got an amazing cast. Pretty much everyone you could look at, the, like the, uh, the male cast, and go, he's in The Bill, he's in London's Burning, he's going to be in Doctor Who again, he's in The Bill, he's in The Bill. Very briefly, let me also just say I have a renewed interest in this particular story, The Visitation, because I taught a couple semesters of pandemic literature for some reason or other, <laughs> during which I taught Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which serves as a kind of prequel of sorts to the events going on in this story, because that takes place in 1665, and this is 1666. So there we go. Let's have a dramatic reading on the back cover, shall we, Jim? Since you are a guest, let's have you do that for us. In my best BBC announcer voice. <laughs> and you're going to dub some Paddy Kingsland over the back of this, aren't you? I Just am indeed. <laughs> Marvellous. Okay, here we go. Tegan, the young air hostess who quite unintentionally became a member of the TARDIS's crew, wants to return to her own time. But when the Doctor tries to take her back to Heathrow Airport in the 20th century, the TARDIS lands instead on the outskirts of 17th century London. The Doctor and his companions receive a decidedly unfriendly welcome, but it soon becomes clear that the sinister activities of other visitors from time and space have made the villagers extremely suspicious of outsiders. And as a result of the alien's evil schemes, the Doctor finds himself on the point of playing a key role in a gruesome historical event. That's tonight on BBC. (laughs) (laughs) Very good, thank you. So, Dalton, what was your first impression when you got this book? Well, the Doctor looks like he's picking someone's daughter up for prom on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) I've been so spoiled by... A lot of the other covers we've had that give us kind of little hints and details of what's going on in the story, this one doesn't tell me anything. Mm. But it's a pretty good picture of Davison. And then the back cover, uh, the description, I think somewhere in your notes you had mentioned that this is one of the first historicals we've had in a while. So I was kind of expecting, like we've had before with historicals, where we're in the middle of the action of some 
historical event. Whereas this one is kind of leading up to a historical event. And I didn't see it coming because even though I took European history in high school and passed the AP exam in the 20 plus years since, a lot of my uh, memory of <laughs> world events has gone away. So even though the date is literally stated on the very first page being late summer of 1666 <laughs> did not see the great fire of london being the end game of this book but it was a fun ride so technically we're at the tail end of one historical event before going into another because the great plague is just winding down in london at this point yeah 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 it's coming to the conclusion and then the fire comes along and kills <laughs> well i assume it killed lots of people but i'll go you one better on that one dalton when i first saw this story on pbs i did not know anything about the great fire so i called the local library <laughs> uh the local university library and asked them what's the significance of pudding lane could you let me know and they looked it up and they told me about it and i was like oh and i can't imagine any library doing that now because we have wikipedia they probably just say well go look it up on wikipedia don't waste our time yeah and i guess i, th I think of it as the the fire being the historical event because the plague was already kind of happening and was kind of a continuation of you know it had been happening for a while kind of all over the place and then mm -hmm. in this was, you know, I even had to go back and refresh myself on the history of it. And so this was like the last kind of big eruption of it in, in Britain. Yeah. And it was a centuries long pandemic, too, mm -hmm. because it had gone on from the 14th century all the way up to the 17th, yeah. off and on. So imagine COVID-19, but coming back in waves for decades yeah. and i i had remembered about the bubonic plague that was ingrained in my head so much in school that i remembered it being from much earlier in history so once i started refreshing myself i was like oh yeah that did keep coming back hmm mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it's it makes for very unsettling reading these days jim what was your first encounter with the story what was your first impression of it i had to look this up i turned 11 two weeks before this was broadcast and I saw it on first transmission and loved it. Absolutely adored it because it's got a monster in it. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my obsession with things like Doctor Who. And I would have, I'm pretty sure I saw the summer repeat. So the, the weird thing with the way, uh, like you've got PBS where you get, you get all these things repeated all the time. In the UK, they pick two stories and, and repeat them over the summer. Mm -hmm. So I would have seen that as well. But this is the point when I've started getting Doctor Who monthly, as it was at that point, and I've been reading the books for a number of years, but we've just had the five faces of Doctor Who repeat season, right. where they showed a load of out-of-Doctor out of episodes, and that is the point when a lot of British fans of my age became fans. You know, it, it really just smacked us in the face and went, you're a fan now, you've got to get obsessive and angry about things that really don't matter. <laughs> so with this one, this is the first season I was watching as a like a card carrying fan as it were now i look back at the whole season and i'm a bit lukewarm on it to be honest with you really it's not it's not a favorite season of mine at all I, even though it's got three of my favorite stories and this is one of them 
but basically Kinder, this, and Earthshock, uh, and then the rest of it, um, it's different flavours of lukewarm, mm. frankly, from complete apathy at the beginning and end of the season. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. I have to admit, since I've been re-watching the stories after finishing the novelizations, or vice versa, I'm finding that to be true as well. It's the season that I'm most familiar with from Davison's time. But it really isn't the strongest, is it? It's strange, though, when you see the fact that this is only Davison's second story in production. Mm-hmm. So he does Fall to Doomsday, then he does this. And it's a massive leap from Fall to Doomsday. Yeah, is it ever. But he's still, it's still not quite there yet. No. And this was filmed two months after Fall to Doomsday, right? Because he was doing Sink or Swim his sitcom for the BBC, so he needed time off from production for that. And it feels like he's taken on some notes that people had and has incorporated them into the performance, but it's still not quite gelled. Yeah, He's, he's quite pissy, isn't he? He's, he's oh, quite, yeah. uh, <laughs> like, I mean, this is the beginning of that era where, and, and Eric Sayward is going to double down on this, where drama is seen to be companions who are supposed to be friends arguing in the TARDIS oh, console room. God. And that becomes a trope that happens until we get Bonnie Langford in, mm-hmm. until Mel. Mm-hmm. Every single companion is just a whiny, sarcastic, ungrateful git. <laughs> 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 and, and, and the queen of those is Tegan. Oh, yes. <laughs> Though some of us adore Tegan for just that very reason. But Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah, Janet Fielding's kind of born to play that part. I've got a, a little note, keeping on the book. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, having to remember that we're, we're here to review the book. <laughs> and the first TARDIS scene, which is, is that chapter two? Yeah, yeah chapter, chapter two. two. So they cut out a lot of the arguing between the Doctor and Adric. Mm-hmm. And it would just go straight into Tegan preparing to go home. And uh, when Nyssa tries to reassure her, saying, oh, you'll go back as if nothing's happened. And she says, tell that to my Aunt Vanessa. Mm. Yeah. And then Nyssa says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. And Tegan says, oh, yeah, it's me who should apologise. Now, I've been watching a lot of RuPaul recently, (laughs) and uh, I've got this kind of voice in my head when when she goes, oh, sorry, it's me who should apologise. And and this is like, you damn right, girl. (laughs) You're Aunt Vanessa. You're Aunt Vanessa compared to my stepmother, my father, everyone I ever knew, everyone on the next planet over, the entirety of Matula Oriensis. Me having to wear the same corduroy trousers for a month. Bitch, please, you have no idea how much I've suffered. (laughs) But instead, because Nyssa is lovely, she goes, Oh, I'm sorry about your aunt, I forgot. Yeah, and you're right. Nyssa should definitely be a little more stroppy about all of that. I think that's one of the things that's missing from these books, as it's missing from the televised story, that Nyssa's got this incredible backstory, and it's rare that you get a writer who actually tries to plummet at all. Even when she's in the same scene as the Master, she doesn't... No. She hardly ever says, he's wearing my dad's face, this is really sick. Yeah, even the next time he appears, it's not him she reacts to, it's the image of the Melker, and it's like, what? Wait, 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 what? Shouldn't you be reacting to the fact that your father's corpse's face is right in front of you. Mm. But yeah, because Dalton hasn't seen it, there is a lot of front material that is missing in the novelization. I suspect because of the way it was filmed out of order, they specifically put in these mentions of the Mara and the Kinda and all of this so that viewers knew that there was definite continuity going on. But Sayward 
takes it back out. And I'm not quite sure why, but it's fine without it, to be honest. Yeah, it works without it. Yeah. So what do we like about what Sayward is doing in this book? I If we like it. <laughs> no, I, I enjoy it. There are two things that I, I notice that kind of recur throughout, one more so than the other. So the first one we have just the very beginning of the story the description of the outside the environment we're in and the focus on animals so he's talking about the fox the owls and the trees the field mouse and then he calls back to the fox just a few pages later and you get this perspective of the fox basically where the fox knows something's up mm-hmm. and then Later in the book, there's another passage that he talks about uh, a badger poking its head out from a bush and watching the doctor and the pteroleptiles walking along. So that was something I really enjoyed, kind of getting us outside of our typical perspective of usually the doctor, sometimes our antagonists or the companions, and just kind of getting a literal bird's eye view. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we haven't had that since the uh, giant maggot eye view back in uh, the Green Death, (laughs) which is lovely, of course. But yeah, it's a very striking beginning. It has the feeling, just as it does on screen, of a prologue rather than a first chapter. Mm -hmm. And just like on screen, we get just enough of this family to get to know them, to know that actual people have died before the Doctor and Company ever arrive. Though we don't get to see their grisly deaths on screen. That's something that (laughs) Sayward is definitely bringing forward, just the the grimness of it all. Mm -hmm. I had to do the thing that Allison and I always do, where I make sure I know who these people are, only to find out three pages later that they're all going to be massacred. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I kept going back and being like, okay, this one is Charles. This one is Sir John. Okay, Ralph is the helper. All right, okay. And then they all just get blown away. Mm-hmm. But it made me invested in them as people. Did you find that the opposite was true? That when everyone got reduced to their function, like the miller and the poacher and the butcher and the candlestick maker, that suddenly you weren't as interested in them? Or Well, at that point, yes, they weren't from my perspective, as much people as tools of the the Terraleptals. They, they were being utilized to do things for them. They weren't themselves. Right. So taking their names away, taking away their kind of autonomy mm-hmm. by just saying, this is the Miller, this is, you know, this character, kind of blank slate, fill in. Yeah. I'm almost certain that that was deliberate on Sayward's part. Because he does think these things out, even though <laughs> all evidence to the contrary from his later books. But mm-hmm. I like the fact that he fixes something from the TV episode. That drives me mad. Mm. So Michael Melia, who plays the Terraleptal leader, has a horrible habit of using contraptions. He's getting aliens wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, aliens speak in a particular way in Doctor in Doctor Who. <laughs> and uh, he uses contraptions all the way through. Like, what's it? I wrote it down here. If I did that, you'd be more of a menace than all the primitives on this planet. Whereas Sayward makes him a lot more formal. Mm-hmm. I said I would demonstrate how I am to rid the planet of its primitive inhabitants, said the leader the sibilance of his voice becoming more pronounced as though he were excited or stimulated in some way. Actually, now I'm thinking about that stimulated. That sounds like fish porn or something. <laughs> it's just the fact that the Terraleptal leader 
in this book speaks like a proper Doctor Who monster mm-hmm. without contractions. I love that. Yeah. There are lots of little fixes. Well, that's kind of a big fix, to be honest. But there are lots of little fixes in there. It's surprising that Sayward is quite willing to kill his darlings, to use the old phrase. That some of the better lines and better jokes are missing. Such as when the doctor is being menaced with being beheaded. And when he goes down on his knees on screen, he actually says, Oh, not again. Because that's happened to him in Fort Doomsday <laughs> quite recently. And it's not in the book. It's like, oh, that's interesting. It would probably break the pace to have it where it is. But Sayward's willing to cut it. He also describes Mace as portly. And Mace isn't portly. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that's a problem with the casting, right? Or rather, not a problem with the casting, but something that Sayward wanted instead. I don't know. I mean, in the book, you kind of imagine that he's going to be a, an overweight, hammy actor. It's funny because the radio play that you mentioned, I've heard the first two of the three that he, he did, and the character is really plummy. And he does sound the hmm. same. There's the, that very rich theatrical voice when he's speaking. Mm-hmm. And so I, I suppose on the page, he... he Portly kind of sums up the sense of him. You know, the fact that he, he probably you know, smells of red wine a bit. Mm-hmm. In, in one of the plays, there's a lovely line where um, his manservant says, there's a gentleman at the door to see you. And Mace replies, tell him I'm only at home to the Prince of Wales. <laughs> <laughs> but in the, in the plays, he's a Victorian actor-manager, so it's been transposed a few centuries, been taken back a few centuries. Right, right. I also got the impression that if he was playing anyone on stage in the the book version, he'd be playing Falstaff. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) he's very much that sort of character. So it really does make sense that he'd be portly, but the actor on screen is definitely not portly. Or he'd be a really, really over-the-top Faust. (laughs) Yes. Oh, God, would he ever. What else do we like? I talked about the animal perspectives. The other thing that I noticed, more so kind of maybe first half of the book, there are all these little bits that focus on characters' hands. So I'll just read a couple of them off. So uh, Elizabeth at the beginning, it says, pretending to be bothered by an itch, but really to hide the fact she was smiling, Elizabeth rubbed her nose with the flat of her hand. And then a few pages later, Tegan fumbled with the catch on her bag, more for something to do with her hands than to check if it was secure. Another one is the small flourish of his hand, which seemed to endorse his agreement, casually petered out on the handle of his pistols, uh, which is a scene with Mace. And then there's another scene where they talk about someone fiddling with the crucifix under their shirt. So mm-hmm. I kept getting these repetitions of focusing on what people are doing with their hands to just kind of give us more detail of what's going on. Yeah, and it's definitely a way of doing show versus tell, mm-hmm. because we could be told that Tegan is somewhat nervous about leaving the TARDIS. We could be told that she's under a compulsion to release the rat from the cage. We could be told any of these things, but we're shown it. And Sayward's particularly good at that. In fact, I have to just say, in general, I was quite surprised at how good this book is, given that I've just recently plowed through Resurrection of the Daleks, and yeah, it's a very different experience. So yeah, this is uh, early Sayward, and it's quite good Sayward. There's 
quite a bit of good stuff going on. It's, it's like he's putting the effort in. Yeah. And then it, it's it's as if that effort was just too much to ever do again, really. There's a, a lovely thing I noticed with uh, with Mace where he keeps saying that he, he, he's played, well, he thrusts his pistols into his waistband. So the pistols go in and out of his waistband all the way through the uh, <laughs> the story. But it's, on a few times, it's he thrusts his pistols back into his waistband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of little character touches, and it's the sort of thing that we saw in Terence Dick's earlier books, too, that when we read, for instance, and I'm going to call it Spirit from Space, that's not what it's called, The Autumn Invasion, <laughs> that you have that same level of care, and you've got somebody saying, ooh, hooray, I'm doing my first book, yeehaw, and that level of care goes down <laughs> significantly. I mean, not significantly in Sayward's case, it just transmogrifies into something different. Here, he's not trying to be Douglas Adams, for instance, whereas in his later books, he's very definitely trying to be Douglas Adams. Trying and failing. Yeah. Yeah. Trying and failing. Yeah, I'm thinking specifically about Slipback, because Slipback, both the radio play and the book are his attempt at doing Douglas Adams, and it falls flat in both cases which is unfortunate. It's a strange story as well, because I think the, the Terraleptal is a great design. It's a really yeah. interesting... The fact that it's colourful, and each of the the, uh, the aliens that we see have got different colours, and it's I think it's just a stunning design. The way that the folds kind of hide where the joins are quite well as well. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that they don't they don't really come back on TV. Yeah. There's, there's one mask used for another alien in another story later on as a delegate in Trial of a Time Lord. Mm-hmm. But the Terraleptals are never seen again, even though another story does refer back to this story. So in, right. in two seasons' time, you've got a story that will reference elements of this story. Mm-hmm. But in Eric Sayward's world, oh. <laughs> Terraleptal poetry, Terraleptal alcohol, every single book that he writes has got some sort of hark back to this. Yep. Tin Clavic, Tin Clavic, Tin Clavic. Yeah, he's, uh, bless you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's quite strange. You can't blame him, though, because he's definitely done the same thing that Brian Hales has done with Paladon. You can tell that he's shaped this entire culture and worldscape in his head, but it's only in his head, and it only comes through basically the tip of the spear in this particular story. And we don't get them ever again. Unlike Brian Hales, you know, he he's given us examples of a race where they're not all the same. So these are Terraleptals who are also criminals, which doesn't go to mean that all Terraleptals are criminals because they've got prisons. So presumably there are people who are not Terraleptals who are not criminals, and then they're noted for their their art and their design, um, which. I don't know. Maybe they got that robot from somewhere else because it's not. It's not particularly artistic, is it? It's not. not it, it, it ain't pretty. But um, oh, no. the fact that he keeps coming back to this in his books suggests that there, there is a universe that the TV show really should have tapped into. We should have met the Terraliftals somewhere else. We should have, mm-hmm. apart from a couple of flashbacks, maybe we don't really see them again, and we really should have. I would love to have met a Terraliftal who was a hero. Yeah, someone said in our comments on Goodreads that the new series should really bring them back because they could be so much better realized in the new series. And they're not badly realized here. You're absolutely right, Jim, that that costume is, I mean, it's still obviously a costume, 
but it's one of the few times that they're trying animatronics, and it's pretty effective. I think it's the first time. Yeah. I mean, they've had very, very basic stuff where they've had little bits of string moving a lip, like in the, mm-hmm. in the Sea Devils, but I think this is the first time you've got a radio-controlled element on a mask. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and the fact that the, uh, the lips peel back from the teeth and that, that there's moisture around the mouth, it looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it really does. I've actually worn, I've actually worn that costume. <laughs> oh, have you really? Yeah. In 1986, in one of my fir- first convention I ever worked on, and I got roped into getting dressed up as uh, a number of different monsters that weekend, and I wore a pterodactyl. I was so excited, and then half an hour later, <laughs> I was close to passing out because I couldn't breathe. Oh. So maybe that's why they didn't bring them back. Maybe it was just it was a bloody horrible thing to wear, but um, <laughs> it looks great. Mm-hmm. There is something else that Sayward cleans up that I kind of like, and that is the way the Terraleptos communicate with the humans they're controlling. There's this whole business on screen that the Terraleptos control being somehow psychic, so that when they report back to base, they have to communicate telepathically, but they can't do it because, of course, they're primitives. And he guts that. He completely gets rid of it and just makes it a two-way radio. It's like, okay. I'm perfectly good with that. It somehow just makes it a lot more streamlined. You don't have to worry about it as much. And there's also the, um, in, in the Terraleptal base, he gets rid of the old black and white monitors and replaces it with a hologram. Oh, so that's, yes. that's a lovely little thing. Also, it's hovering in midair. Just to, I love it when the books do something that they really couldn't have done on telly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's quite a cute little moment. Absolutely. It was funny reading this again this week, and I, I came away thinking, oh, I love this. I really enjoy it. And then when I read it for my blog, which was, I got to it in about October 2020, my review then is, is quite dismissive. <laughs> I, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, something's changed in the last few years because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I said it, it because it mainly comes down to the fact that he just starts the scene cold with the Doctor, his companions, and they are who they are. And the only one who gets any kind of description is Tegan, who, who told is an air stewardess. Mm-hmm. Nobody else has explained. And I don't know whether that was an in-house policy where they just say, just do it, or whether it's an assumption that, oh, they're on TV at the moment, so they don't need explaining. But I really miss those, even just the one-liner introduction that Terence Dix would do with the the traveler in time and space known as the Doctor. Just something Mm -hmm. like that. I'm almost certain it's the latter. And the reason I'm thinking that is because at this point, there is such a cross-communication between the production office and Target that they probably were told, yeah, we need to start doing this because Dix is going to keep doing what Dix do. (laughs) So he's going to continue introducing characters as if they've never been seen before. But yeah, at the time that this is being written, they're absolutely on television. There's no need to really introduce them because people will remember them from the season before. So in, uh, in 2006, that was the last time I went to the Gallifrey Convention and I interviewed Janet Fielding on stage. Mm. I was a very last-minute replacement. The person who was supposed to be doing the interview just cancelled at the last minute for some reason. So I had about 20 minutes to come up with some questions. And my opening question to Janet Fielding was, uh, it's funny that people expect you to remember things that happened 30 years ago. I mean, nobody says, hey, how was that typing you did? Or how was that filing you did You know, in a normal job? <laughs> the interview did not go well. Oh, no. She just froze up on me. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was funny but I'm just saying that to say Terence Dix will continue to call Tegan an air stewardess 
long after she ceases to be a nurse stewardess. Yes, yes, he will. And it's my theory that, without wanting to spoil it, because you're going to get to a point very soon, Dalton, it's my theory that she never actually achieves being a nurse stewardess. I don't think she has a single day on that job. No, I don't think so either. I, I think when it happens, she she she's finished. So this thing of them saying uh, she's an issue with this, oh, give her a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that the way she leaves, <laughs> it, it may just be a case of her saying, yeah, no, I can do so much more. And as we see from the Jodie Whittaker story, that indeed is the case. Mm-hmm. At least they say she used to be. Yes, used to <laughs> be. Yeah. So my theory is that she was an air stewardess on smaller airlines before we meet her. So maybe that's how you justify it. But certainly for that airline she was heading for in Legopolis, I don't think she actually makes it. Mm-hmm. I'll also say of characters that are used well in this one, Nissa is used particularly well. And she's used fairly well on screen, too. I mean, she's out of the way of the action taking care of this gigantic sonic device that she somehow expected to lure the android in to be destroyed by. But it makes a little more sense on the page, and her despair at having to destroy such a beautiful machine makes more sense when you cannot see the machine in question and judge her lack of aesthetics, because, yeah, that android is just tacky on screen. Now I need to look it up and see what you really do. Yeah, take a look because the screenshot of the android is just like, oh my god. Allison was saying she doesn't want to do Black Orchid because she beheld the cover and was like, ah. And I was thinking, good thing she didn't see the android in visitation because she'd never come back to the show ever again. Holy crap, that thing's terrifying, isn't it? Are, are you looking at the Death's Head one, or are you looking at the one without the... Even without the Death Mask, it's terrifying. Like, yeah. it, it's so simple that it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. That The angular head, the diamond chest plate, yeah, th- that would scare the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> would it? Because yes. I think it's fabulous! <laughs> yeah, it's got that very tacky feel to it, but yeah, it can be... It can be a little menacing, but it's much more menacing on the page, I think. Yeah, it's like if you've asked an AI to uh, create a drag queen robot. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. This is exactly what it would come up with. Yeah. It shuffles in and goes, slay. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Maybe it's a little more goofy in movement, but it stills. It, it's the the dead eyes, the just like black eyes to me. Something about that is just... Yeah, it does have that going for it. Now, something I do love uh, about Sayward's handling of Nyssa is later on when the doctor is congratulating her on the booster. And he then says, I didn't know it would work, but it's good to see that it did. And she's horrified because she realizes he didn't think it was going to work. (laughs) You you son of a bitch, how could you leave me in the TARDIS with this thing and not know that it was going to work? And those little moments are just amazing to me. Oh, God. Well, if we talked about Nyssa, we have to talk about how stupid and horrible Adric is in this book. Yeah, and we would do that anyway, but yeah, let's let's do that. Because we don't really have a Waterhouse story for this particular oh one, unless God. Jim knows something I don't. Some behind-the-scenes thing that Matthew Waterhouse did that embarrassed everybody. You've done the good stuff. I, I You know what? I, as a kid, I, I loved Adric. 
So did I. I really liked them. I think, again, it's another one of those things where if you've come to something a little bit too old and you're a bit too cynical, you're going to hate Adric because you don't want to be reminded of what it was like to be an awkward teenager who's uncomfortable in their own skin. But the uh, interview that Toby Haydock did with Matthew Waterhouse for the Blu-ray of season 19, I think changed a lot of people's opinions of Adric because you you see a man who's looking back at himself going, yeah, I was was 18 and I didn't really know who I was and, you know, maybe there's some level of autism or ADHD going on there as well. And uh, when you see the way Matthew Water is now, and he's quite self-aware, I think, compared to how he was as a teenager, a lot of the stories that put him in a bad light feel a little bit like they're bullying Mm -hmm. to me. So, you know, even the the story of on Kinder where he's speaking to the incredibly (laughs) experienced Richard Todd, but Richard Todd's told him he's never done TV, and he's thinking, I remember when I was... Starting in TV, oh, I'll, be, I'll try and be really helpful, not realising that it comes across as crass, telling a hugely experienced movie actor yeah. <laughs> how things are made. But it's coming from a really kind place. So now when I watch these stories, I'm, I, I think what's funny is I, I wasn't allowed to watch Doctor Who on video because my mum hated it. So what I did was I recorded a lot of these stories onto audio. And I think Adric sounds great on audio because yeah. you don't see his awkward physicality. You don't see him not knowing what to do with his hands and, you know, putting them in his pockets or just feeling a bit awkward and like a teenager, frankly. Yeah, like that karate chop gesture he keeps doing. The fact that the first TARDIS scene is cut in the book means that we we miss the thing where the Doctor's given Adric a hard time, you know, for everything that happened in Kinder. He's telling him off and uh, Nissa says, oh, poor Adric, you're always in trouble. And Adric says, I try so hard. Mm. Yeah, I think you you do, mate, don't you? You really do try. <laughs> yeah, and the, oh. and the look that the doctor gives him—it's obviously not the doctor looking at him. It's Davison looking at him and saying, "It is a challenge to me every day not to knee you in the balls." Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh my god! And when he says, uh, "I don't think Tegan likes me," it's like, you know, as, as humanoids, we we hide our feelings. Uh, we don't really show how we feel. And you just think the whole time they're laughing at him, and it's really cruel. <laughs> yeah, and I can't help thinking it is the actors kind of projecting that to some degree, mm. because they've made no bones about the fact that they don't really, or didn't really care for him. I, I think they may have come to some peace on that now. I really don't know. I think it's a bit like with Will Wheaton in Star Trek Next Gen, isn't it, where LeVar Burton said, you're an arsehole, but you are, you are arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you know, they look at Matthew and they're very kind of defensive of him, but really rude to his face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that is true. But when you see when you see Janet Fielding, she's like that with everyone. If, you know, if she likes them, she'll tease them. Oh, God, incessantly. Come to think of it, um, you mentioned that Blu-ray interview, and we'll go off the book for just a second. One of the things that still keeps me from liking Matthew Waterhouse nearly as much is what he says in that interview about Tegan and Nyssa and how they're less interesting once Adric goes away. It's like, uh 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 no, 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 you don't get to say that. Because some of the more interesting things that Tegan and Nissa do happen after Adric has left. So that's my one thing. Otherwise, yeah, absolutely. It's funny though that, like, if they killed off Nissa, you know, or, or removed her, did anything horrible with her, you wouldn't really care, would you? You know, you just, she's just such a bland character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So 
there's no drama with her. But at least we got Tegan. Tegan becomes you know the the star of that show. True, true. I just keep thinking of the way they you know they they write on this and the only thing she does is take a skirt off. Right, right. And then and then work with a load of lepers, and you're thinking you've probably got a horrible life ahead, but I don't really care. <laughs> true. At least in this one, in the book version, Tegan gets to bust out the uh, karate moves oh God. when she's mind-controlled, even though on screen she's essentially just being hugged into submission by Davison, which is hilarious to see. But Dalton, you, what specifically causes you to not like Adric in this one? Well, it's not even that I don't like him. I think it's, that, again, that we have a story like we've had in the past where it seems like the story is written to kind of belittle and make Adric look dumb and make him look silly. You know, there's the scene where he and Tegan are escaping from the cell and they're breaking out the window from the top of the door to get out. And they describe Tegan as just being elegant and just super athletic and getting through the window. And she turns around and Adric has basically just like fallen and they describe it as tegan kind of like holding back laughter yeah yeah (laughs) which it it kind of treats him unfairly but uh, you know i think like jim was saying like he is an awkward teen it makes sense but the way it's described feels kind of nasty towards him with no reason behind it really and then also when they're i think they're going back to the tardis and he you know his foot goes into a hole and he falls and hurts his ankle oh god yeah yeah he's just kind of treated as dead weight mm-hmm. <laughs> i suppose though i mean it goes back to the very beginning when you've got the creation of the show and you've got sydney newman writing notes about how the show is being shaped and he says we need a kid to get into trouble and make mistakes <laughs> and adric is that kid yeah, he is. So you got Tegan to be the antagonist, to get into danger, but to stand up to the monsters as bravely as she can. You've got Adric to get into trouble and make mistakes. What's Nissa for? <laughs> I mean, I, I love how delicate you're, you're describing the uh, the machine she builds, the vibrating <laughs> machine. Oh, God, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, I, I know you love innuendo, but I'm determined not to give you one. So, so many <laughs> jokes have been made about that. Yes, that she stays in the TARDIS building a vibrator, which is powerful <laughs> enough to destroy an android, and then she keeps it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, in her room. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like she's just there to do something that the doctor can't do because the doctor is tied up doing something else. Right, and and to be fair... <laughs> To be completely fair, you've got the impossible task of somehow juggling three companions and a semi-companion with Mace. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult. That's difficult for any writer, and some writers are going to do it fairly well. Other writers are not going to even bother with it, and they're going to sideline one or the other of the characters. It's kind of a gift, for instance, that we had that contract problem with Kinda. And this had to be written out because it actually allows you to do something with the remaining characters. But even Tegan's sleeping for two days of it. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it it feels a little crowded. Yeah, it it really is. And it's going to continue to be crowded for at least another season, which is unfortunate. As far as things that Sayward doesn't do well, are there things we don't like? In this novelization, I think he covers it quite effectively. It's in my blog. I said he, he does a Terence Dix. You know, he, he says what's happening, and there you go. He does the job quite well. 
those little flourishes of, of giving us viewpoints through the animals are probably the nicest introduction to it. When I read it this week, I was thinking, I'm going to be a bit of a, a show-off here. And when, when it comes to the score at the end, I'm going to score it really highly. And then when I look back at my old review, I thought, oh, oh yeah, actually. <laughs> it's not as good as I thought. I think I was just in a better mood when I read it this week. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly better. And going back to Matthew Waterhouse for just a moment, it's certainly better than the side story that Matthew Waterhouse wrote for Adric and Nyssa in the Target storybook, which is set between their departure from the woods and their arrival in the house. (laughs) As far as gaps for missing adventures go, that has to be the most forced one I think I've ever seen. But there actually is a fairly lengthy story that Matthew Waterhouse writes that shows off Adric, but doesn't do quite so much with Nissa, where they've had their own little side adventure between the time that he starts the TARDIS rolling in the woods and the time they actually arrive in the house. And I suppose Big Finish have got a whole box sets and smaller gaps than that, haven't they? So. Oh, God, do they ever. <laughs> and, and, and we're grateful. <laughs> yeah. We are grateful. But it's like, hmm, there's no room. There's no room for this story, but okay, let's go on. No, no, no. Again, at, at least Matthew's trying. <laughs> yeah. He is, and sometimes in the right way, in the right sense of the word, but most of the time it's the other sense of the word. (laughs) Dalton, was there anything that you felt was not as good? I think, if anything, it just feels crowded. It feels like there's too much to handle, you know, too many characters to handle, Mm -hmm. really, what's going on. So then you have bits like Nyssa and the TARDIS making a machine, or Tegan getting locked up and then being mind controlled with the bracelets yeah i don't know i think a lot of the problems if there are any are with all the lockings up if that makes sense that that strikes me as uh, not the best writing when you have to have characters constantly getting taken prisoner or getting locked up or what have you there is one thing that i think doesn't get talked about much And that is the end of the story when the Doctor leaves that circuit board from the Terraleptal machinery with Mace as a keepsake. I can only think that he's assuming that Mace is going to die in the fire and the circuit board's going to be destroyed. Because otherwise, that's a a piece of tech you really don't want some archaeologist from the 20th or 21st century coming across in what's left of London town and thinking, oh... It just seems like a really weird thing to leave in. That being said, I'm very happy about the way this book ends because he also does one other fix. I'm actually going back to praise him for a second. The Terraleptal leader's death in this is so much better than it is on screen. Because on screen, it's almost needlessly gruesome. Mm. Because he melts in the fire. And they have the actor, you know, screaming in agony over the soundtrack. It's like, oh, no, 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 this is just a little too much. Whereas Sayward actually makes us feel just a little bit sad because the Terraleptal leader knows he's about to die and feels this kind of pang. And it's like, oh, poor guy. He just wanted to get out of here. Of course, he also wanted to destroy humanity with the plague, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I wonder what he was writing. (laughs) (laughs) yes what is he writing when the doctor comes in 
He's using a pen and a quill. It's like, the hell? He's probably writing a poem, because they are very artistic, aren't they? And I keep yes. thinking of uh, the fact that the actor who played him is another person who ended up in a soap opera a few years later. <laughs> he was in EastEnders for a, a year or so. So he's probably doing something, I don't know, roses are red, violets are blue, here comes the plague, it's going to kill you. Ah. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> I also have to wonder how the Terralepto leader gets to London if he's just putting on a cloak and driving himself. Have you been to London? Well, no, <laughs> obviously okay. not. But... Yeah, I lived there for 15 years. People don't look at you in the eye. Really? Yeah. Uh, it's the, the height of rudeness to speak to somebody on public transport or to look at somebody or to acknowledge their existence. That's why they give us free newspapers to get on the tube so that you don't have to look at anyone. <laughs> if you get on a tube without a book or without headphones, you're just weird. So he, he is absolutely fine getting to London. Except it's September 1666 and there should still be checkpoints on the roads, right? Because of the plague, even though it's dying down. He probably uses the northern line and then changes onto the central. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I could I could possibly see that. I mean, it's funny when you you think about um, Mace as well, and you know he runs off into the fire to try and put it out, and apparently only six people died in the Great Fire of London. I mean, four fifths of the population ended up homeless, but only six people died. And we now know that a few of them were colourful lizard people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so st- statistically, Richard Mace has got quite a good chance of surviving this. Yes, which means that circuit board is going to survive. And I'm still bothered by that. But then I get bothered by really small things, as anybody who's listened to this podcast already knows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe the Terralepitals are so good that they've got biodegradable tech. They might just. Let's so... <laughs> You know, he's treasuring it, and then he goes, oh, it's, it's falling apart. Oh, it's rusting. Oh, it's gone. Oh, well, I'll throw it out. It's, uh... <laughs> oh, speaking of tech, before anything else, Dalton, the sonic screwdriver. How do you feel about uh, the sonic screwdriver being destroyed? I was not expecting it, but I feel like the sonic screwdriver is not relied on as much in classic Who as it is in modern Who. Oh, that's for sure. So seeing it gone, it's like, well, I mean, the doctor doesn't rely on it as much, but he'll make another one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which he eventually does. Jim, how did you feel about that at the time? Because that was a big thing, because it was supposed to stick. (laughs) I once saw a fan video where they put together little clips of all the companions in order. And at one point, they, they do a freeze frame on the sonic screwdriver. So so now I just find it funny because it, it got overly attentive on you know, this, this prop. But also the fact that you kind of have a replay of this exact scene in Smith & Jones in the new series. Oh, yeah. Where the, uh, the sonic screwdriver gets destroyed and the doctor's gone, oh, I, f- I feel like I've lost a friend. Oh, it's terrible. And she's gone, oh, is, is the only one? No, I'll just make a new one. And it <laughs> undermines the, the pain of that. You know, it's... In quite a few of the books, there's a suggestion that he does in fact have a sonic screwdriver, but that's usually because the author has forgotten that he's been destroyed. Mm-hmm. In the video game Dalek Attack, the Seventh Doctor has a sonic screwdriver. Oh, okay. I wonder if it's meant to be the Seventh Doctor, you know, because he has one in the t- TV movie. Yeah. So maybe it's that. I don't know. I, I <laughs> very much doubt that the makers of the video game were all that interested in continuity. Though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny that um, J&T put so much effort into trying to make things marketable. 
And his idea of marketable is putting question mark collars on a shirt <sighs> rather than, oh, I don't know, having a robot pet and having the only bit of identifiable merchandise that you could have that the Doctor actually uses as a tool. And it's something that the new series got right. It's like, I think one of the, the biggest sellers that character actually has is the, the replica sonic screwdrivers. It's one of the most successful things they, they have on, and, and JNT, or thinking about mer- merchandising, and he gets rid of K9, gets rid of the sonic screwdriver, but you could buy a tent and replica costumes of Adric and Tegan and Nissa's outfits. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and try as you might, you couldn't actually buy question mark colored shirts. <laughs> no, and just as well. <laughs> Though you could make your own question mark jumper later on. Uh, that would be a questionable fashion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew there was a reason we asked you on the show, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> okay, anything else we want to say about this book? Um, well, we were just talking about innuendo a bit ago, and I think my favorite line in the book is fetch a squirter, arouse the street. <laughs> Oh, just you wait to the Mm. next book. There's a line you're going to (laughs) love. Yeah. The next book is Black Orchid, isn't it? Yep. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'll I'll wait until I speak to you next time before I I talk about um, Adric's love life. Yeah. Oh, right. That, I, I was laughing out loud last night, and my poor roommate, who's having his bout of food poisoning, came actually came to the room and said, what are you laughing about? Are you laughing at me? It's like, no, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at the fact that this has happened in this book, but we will talk about that next time. <laughs> I'll, I'll be listening to the episode, and I'll be interested to hear what you think a particular scene is depicting. Yes. Mm. Yes, Definitely. I have one one other thing uh, that I enjoyed when the doctor is, or excuse me, when Richard is trying to pick the lock and then the doctor shoots the lock. Yes. And Richard is convinced that the doctor missed and that he actually picked the lock and that's the only reason the door opened. It had nothing to do with the doctor shooting it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and that reminds me too. That is a weird trope of say words, of course, Sayward is fascinated with people with guns. He always gives the doctor a gun Hmm. and has the doctor actually use it, or rather almost use it, because he uses it here and he uses it effectively. Earthshock is going to have the doctor pointing a gun on the fucking cover, so that's going to be interesting. And... God, does he do it in Slipback? I don't know if he does, because that's a radio play. I was trying to think when the last time we had people firing guns was because it's been a while it really has and uh, i mean i'm think is it megloss i think so so and before that it's it's uh, in the previous season but in this the very first scene you've got eric sayward with uh, getting gun heavy and uh-huh. they've, they've got that cabinet full of weapons yes. and they're just going to go through every single one of them <laughs> and yeah. um, you know right from the get go and then when he meets mace the yep. doctor's weighing up the, the musket and having a look at the musket and aiming the musket, and he's suddenly a bit excited by having a gun to play with. So. Yes, which is so odd. In in the, the fan wars of the uh, the 1990s, which were very long and bloody, <laughs> there was um, a schism where you were either frock or gun. Oh, do you remember these, Tony? Yeah, I do. So the frock are the ones who, who do... You know, nice costume dramas, relationships, and, things like that. and the gun are the people who just want to make blood fests and make everything a bit like 
Reservoir Dogs. Oh, God. You, you were in one camp or the other, apparently. Oh, just like the camp about whether or not there should be swearing in Doctor Who. That war got fairly uh, well and truly won on one side. Even Barry Letts puts a minor swear in some of his uh, 1990s radio plays, doesn't he? I'm not sure that cow shit can be considered minor swearing. <laughs> <laughs> because that's pretty major swearing come to think of it we talked about that at the time and how the entire book it appears in is cow shit but that's yeah listeners if you haven't heard that episode go back and listen to it because we have some choice words to say about Barry Letts and his writing even though we adore him in every other way what is it with producers and writing oh my god John Nathan Turner can't do it Barry Letts can't do it Philip Hinchcliffe can't do it when he's writing a book it's insane. It really is. I still haven't forgiven Philip Hinchcliffe for cutting out Amelia Rumford from most of Seat of Doom. Nor have I. It's almost like we're watching a different show. Yeah, a very different show. <laughs> the character we'd most want a Big Finish spin-off series for, and, and he just, nah, we'll, we'll cut on her. Yeah, she's not in the book at all. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs> yeah. Yes. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.52. The reviews for our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it 3.5 stars and says, As I've read some of Sayward's later pretentious twaddle, I approached this book with some trepidation. I don't know if it's because I was relieved that it wasn't, after all, a poor attempt at copying the style of Douglas Adams that I gave it 3.5 stars. I had to round it up or down to a whole number on the Goodreads site. It's Sayward, so naturally I rounded it down. <laughs> I enjoyed the book as much as the TV version. Some aspects were better. To be fair to Matthew Waterhouse, I don't think many actors could have made Adric's attempted attack on the android any more convincing, and it's much better in prose. The prologue is interesting and a better opening than on TV with the animal's point of view rather than people. On the other hand, the pteroleptals for the time were pretty good, if not very athletic. <laughs> I think if they were brought back to the new show, they would be easy to update, so long as they were given the same treatment as the Zygons rather than the Silurians. Yeah, I agree. Their Android 2 was well-designed, I thought, and benefited from not being a typical TV sci-fi robot. Really? We get a little of that in the book, but with less impact. All in all, better than I expected. Michael gives it three stars and says the prologue to this one is really quite good. It starts with a gentle description of a summer evening in 17th century England with a fox witnessing the arrival of alien visitors. Yes, it's all a bit cliched, but the tranquil poetry of the moment's counterpoint, the tragic brutality of what is to follow very well. Yeah, that's a point. Eric Sayward also does a remarkably good job of creating fully realized characters in a handful of pages, making their deaths really quite sad. Unfortunately... This is as good as it gets. The rest of the book is the more mechanical script-based affair that many of the later target novelizations became. It is one of the Fifth Doctor's better scripts, though. It's nice to see the Doctor doing some detective work as he slowly discovers what the aliens are up to. 
Sayward recycles a character that he used in some Victorian radio plays, cowardly thespian turned vagrant highwayman Richard Mace. He's a lot of fun, though Sayward's pre-casting version describes him as being portly. I think he would have made a good regular companion. He actually would have. Adric is as universally annoying as ever. Nissa gets plenty to do for a change. Tegan almost becomes a ninja air hostess at one point as she sets about trying to get some kicks in on the doctor while mind control <laughs> instead of just being hugged into submission like in the broadcast version. And the doctor is really quite amusing, trying and failing to hold his temper as the kids continue to stress him out. So the novelization might disappoint folk who want a few interesting narrative extras, though barring a short scene where Tegan comments on her encounter with the Mara and Kinda, at least there aren't any obvious cuts. Mainly, though, I expect most will just enjoy revisiting a fun story. And finally, because there always is one, Becky, with an I, gives it four stars and says, I love this version of The Great Fire of London. <laughs> That's the whole damn review. Four stars. I, I love Becky. Becky with yeah. the good hair. Yeah. Becky with an eye. Yeah. Yeah, don't I loved her review of Citizen Kane where she just went, It's a sled! <laughs> it's a sled! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So, let's get your opinions. Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'll give this a 3.5. Uh, there wasn't anything absolutely horrible about it. I'm not familiar, you know, I haven't watched the, the televised story, so I don't know how it compares to that yet. But it was fine. It was a good story. I didn't hate it the way that I have <laughs> some recently. For a doomsday, I'm looking at you. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, 3.5. I'm getting more of a sense of who the Doctor is. I feel like Richard Mace was a fun character, and like I said earlier, the historical aspect of it, I thought, was brought in in an interesting way, and I, I liked that about it. So, 3.5. All right. And Jim? I was going to try and be a bit rebellious and go for a four, but Becky's put me off, so yeah, 3.5. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it does the job. It's funny, you know, I'm criticising it for not introducing the Doctor and the Companions, but Dalton, you're right, he, he doesn't tell, he shows, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He's not introducing the characters, but he shows us who they are and how they react to things, and it's a lot more subtle than I, I think I'd given it credit for. But 3.5 seems generous. Yeah. Yep. And as for me, I think it's 3.5 across the board, because, again, as one of the reviews says, it doesn't add a lot. In fact, it subtracts, but it actually does quite well by the story with its subtractions. So as you said earlier, Jim, it's Sayward putting in an effort, and this is something that Sayward's not always going to do, and not always as effectively. This one, I was expecting not to like it. And I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. I'd almost give it a four, but again, Becky has put me off as she so often does. So, yeah, 3.5 across the board. So, thank you both. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. And thank you, Jim Sangster, for joining us on this particular story. Thank you. We will be seeing you again when we come up on Earthshock in a couple of episodes, and I'm very happy to have you there for this one. And I'm going to shock everyone with one of my little pet theories about Earthshock. Oh, okay. One of my crazy theories we've been talking about. Oh, yeah. You, you're going to like it, hopefully. Yep. Next time, however, 
we get Terrence Dudley, yet again, with the novelization of Black Orchid, and we will be joined by Jason Miller, which we're looking forward to. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at the WTargetPCs, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.